Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello and welcome to The Five Rules of Writing, brought to you by Strong Words magazine. Now this is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true about writing, whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether that's solemn historical fiction or jokes for a talk show, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. And today I'd like to welcome a writer of several masterfully discomforting suspense novels, a peerless generator of tension, the fabulous Sabine Durant. Hello, Sabine. Hi, Ed. Nice to be here. Thank you for joining me. Now, how are things in your field of creepy yet exquisite suspense? Well, the big thing is I'm not getting the chance to overhear people's conversations. That's what I'm really missing. The kind of just picking up on daily stuff that's a bit unsettling that you see in your normal walk of life. Um, But otherwise, you know, I'm just writing as normal. So I suppose plus a change if you work at home and you're a writer. Quite. Well, this is something I was concerned about, really, because, you know, and how the sort of current regime of home arrest has affected you. You know, if you're finding it hard to research what normal life is like? Um, unfortunately, I started the novel that I'm writing now thinking that I was going to be in France last summer, so I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice? I'd, so I started plotting it about this time last year, and I'd planned to be in France for three weeks, so I thought, well, I'll have a... My most recent book, which is Finders Keepers, is set in a house. It's a woman who basically is almost under house arrest of her own sort of volition. And so I thought, oh, I'll write something very different. It'll be about something set in the south of France. It'll be more of a kind of adventure story. Um, and then, of course, lockdown happened. And so I've written this book endlessly Googling south of France. I can't even, the things I can't remember. I've been to the south of France, but I can't remember things. I can't remember what the birds sound like. That's what I'm missing. But anyway, I'm making it up. Looking up Yesterday, I was looking at... Um, YouTube videos of markets in Aix-en-Provence and of course really annoyingly people who make videos about markets in Aix-en-Provence overlay them with soundtracks of music (laughs) I want to hear what the sounds are like and yes I'm listening to kind of you know accordions and anyway but yeah so it is challenging but the writing is itself I suppose the writing is at least there are fewer distractions. I mean that's really interesting you know that the 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 sort of the things that you take most for granted and the the almost sort of mundane background that that you don't even you know bother paying attention to suddenly unavailable to you and those little authentic touches now where do you get them from? Exactly it's really hard it is really hard and I think the problem is that one's I don't know if maybe this is, but you know, the cliche is what first comes to mind. You think, what are people talking about on the bus? And the first thing you think about is cliche that, but actually really in real life, people surprise you all the time and things are interesting. And the things you see just, you know, the flotsam and jetsam that's under a bush in a country lane isn't always a packet of crisps or a can. I mean, obviously there are a lot of crisp packets and cans, but it's something, you know, there's something really quirky that you'll see, a shoe or a, you know, one sock. And that's the thing that you notice if you're going out and doing research. And if you're sitting at home, just trying to think about what's under a bush in a country lane, you can't, it doesn't come to mind. 
quite I, I once had to take a load of ivy down from outside my house and it was extraordinary the things that uh that were hidden inside this uh, this great sort of wig of ivy that uh, <laughs> exactly from down. fireworks from nineteen seventy six. Now, a sort of common aspect of your books, Sabine, is like people who are just a little bit off. You know, you can't quite tell which side of the border they're on. You know, are they normal but odd, or is there something seriously wrong with them? But they, you know, they don't do enough to kind of frighten everybody off straight away. Now, with your expert eye in lockdown, are you seeing signs of people cracking a little bit more? Oh, God, such a good question. I mean, certainly those people who are absolutely furious if you walk too far close to them on the path and <laughs> you feel like they're going to kill you. To their face, yeah. And yesterday I was walking down a path two metres apart from a friend, which means, of course, you, because it's very muddy on Wandsworth Common where I live, you really are taking up the path. And a man came on his bicycle. Honestly, the language, I mean, it was extraordinary. I thought the poor guy was just about to have a heart attack. So I suppose the kind of that sense that we're all on a knife edge, well, not we're all, but often people are on a knife edge in urban life between losing it and not losing it. You know, when you hear noise in the street and it drives you insane and you just think if only I had an air pistol, I'd shoot them, which is a terrible thing. But of course, one doesn't actually have an air pistol. And if one did, one wouldn't shoot them. But um, I think maybe it is getting a little bit, people are tenser. Or maybe they're not, I don't know, Ed. Sometimes I think, oh, maybe we're all a bit more relaxed, <laughs> sort of up and down, isn't it? Well, there's certainly, um, you know, I certainly feel certain cyclists are due a bit of a reckoning after all of this, <laughs> along with certain <laughs> jogging styles, you know, just uh, are going to be featuring in uh, in sort of crime novels in the yes, future. That's right. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Okay, let's get to your five Rules of writing then, Sabine. Now, the first one, you said killer opening. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I'd love to think that it was a... I used to be a journalist. I worked on um, The Independent and The Guardian for many years. And in newspaper articles, it was the first sentence. You were just obsessed with getting the perfect first sentence. And I think some writers do have novelists, actually a lot of novelists have fantastic first sentences. It's not something that really... It's the it's the setting, it's this scenario, the setup is what I spend a lot of time thinking about. So for um, an early novel, Remember Me This Way, I just had this idea. It's actually the first thing sometimes that comes to me of a, some, a woman walking along a busy road to lay flowers at the scene of her father, her husband's fatal accident and then getting there and realising that there were flowers newly laid from somebody she didn't know. And it was just, that set me off and I sort of then thought, well, I think about the the plot built from that moment and the same I would say with Take Me In which was the one before last which was a couple on holiday in Greece with their young baby and a moment of distraction that terrible exhaustion on holiday when you first holiday with a new child and a stranger slightly unsavory stranger rescues their child from drowning and so the relationship that that then sets in play so I suppose I always try and think of some some way of setting a novel up that intrigues and draws the reader in. I mean, they've got there's so many books to read. So part of the battle always is thinking, you know, this reader, why is this reader going to want to read my book and why will they carry on reading my book? And how, how sort of extensive do you, when, when does the opening finish? Is it the first paragraph, the first page, the first chapter? It's the first chapter, and usually it's far too long, and I then have to go back and make it shorter. But yeah. And, and are there processes, processes you go through to sort of locate that killer opening, or are, them, or are they just sort of bombarding you constantly in day and no, night? No, I, honestly, I have about six in, in my head, and I... 
you know, on, at one time. And so even when I'm writing the one that the novel that I'm writing now, I've got future ideas and they're sort of jostling. And I'm tr the ones that really it's like something right coming to the surface of water by the end of which one I actually go with, I suppose. OK. And it, it normally takes a little while to realise that somebody is a bit off, both in real life and in fiction. And I don't think we sort of generally start from a default point of assuming that everybody might be sort of mentally damaged or not have our best interests. <laughs> I think we're all mentally damaged. <laughs> I suppose that's what I think. Um, well, yeah, let's so say, uh, da not dangerously mentally damaged anyway. No. We're, we're not a sort of threat to others. So, or that others are, you don't instantly believe that others are a threat to us. So how, how do you sort of turn the volume up on these people to sort of unnerve yet not frighten people away? Um, so what do I think about that? Gosh, that's such a... I think I just want a few... So what, what, what we were just saying about killer openings, sometimes it's, scenar it's a scenario, and then other times with um, book not Lie With Me and the one I'm writing now, it's much more about realising very early on that the, the key is off, that the note is off. There's something just slightly off about the way this person is reacting to the world. Um, with Lie With Me, it was, the man was sort of, um, it's first person narrator and he is, you know, to noticing, he's objectifying women. Um, he's maybe pop, popping things into his pocket when he's, you know, he's, he's a thief, basically. Um, how do I, oh God, what? It's really, I mean, it's about keeping the reader invested in the character. So, while knowing that it's about it's basically it's a balancing act between finding things that aren't quite right that aren't quite what we would say neurotypically normal or socially acceptable behavior with also qualities that are engaging otherwise mm -hmm. you're you know so even if you think about ripley patricia highsmith's character you know he's a psychopathic killer and yet he cares about animals i know that's terrible isn't it that psychopaths often do hit them with love dogs but you know that or, you know, I think my, the character in um, Lie With Me, he's actually basically quite kind and he has a sense of humour and also increasingly has self-knowledge. And I suppose, I suppose, yes, the, the, the character's realisation of their own damage is part, I mean, I suppose what we're talking about here is books that are psychological and also books that are thriller and in the psychological thriller, you've got both. So it's about having a character who's psychologically interesting and deep and um, also having a plot that works against that. So things are happening either to them or because of things that they're doing, which unsettle the reader even more. Sorry, that's a rather rambling answer. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, I think if it were easy, then everybody would, do, would be doing it. So <laughs> clearly, yeah. Yes, exactly. it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a, an, a, a sort of writing exercise of great subtlety, isn't it, to make people... You know, create a character who is a likable and b unlikable. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I suppose so there's sympathy. You, you know, you have to have. Sometimes it's so with the uh, Finders Keepers, my latest. It's about a woman who lives on her own and is a hoarder, and um, she is very observant of her neighbours and constantly watching what they're up to. And in a way that one finds a little bit distasteful. You know, the thought of somebody watching other people isn't very agreeable um but then you realize that she is incredibly lonely so at the same time you don't want to have too much pity with 
you know, because then you're going to lose interest. That's the awful mm. thing is that, you know, so it's again, yes, it's about the conflict constantly between interesting thing ha things happening and um, a sort of psychological exploration of something more deep. Brilliant. I can I envision you turning a very sensitive <laughs> dial to a little bit more. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So your second, your second rule of writing was uh, you. You said for me, the key is an unreliable narrator. Yeah. So that's back really to what we've just been talking about. It's um, so there's the whole a that that's you know enjoyably unsettling for the reader, but also I suppose with, with thrillers, what you're doing is it's a puzzle. So the reader and the writer are engaged in a sort of puzzle together. And um, if the more unreliable the narrator is, the more unsettling it is for the reader. So they're not only trying to work out what's going on, what what's, has happened or what is about to happen, but also how much of what I'm being told is the truth and to be, you know, to have faith in. And I think that is an interesting, I think that's just intellectually interesting as a reader to be sort of engaged on all sorts of levels in terms of, you know, it's, there's nothing more thrilling than having the rug pulled from under you that moment in Gone Girl is a fantastic moment but I also think the reader likes you know you can't you can't lie to the reader um nothing you can lie to the reader but you can only lie directly you can't so you the, no you can indirectly so if the character is lying they can't lie to the reader they can write lie to somebody else in the novel that's one of my rules I suppose right um, so it's a sort of, you know, you, and I would, I like a reader to be sort of slightly one step ahead constantly. So they sort of think that they're one step ahead. Um, and I can't, you know, so it's it, that, I suppose that's one of the things I think about an unreliable narrator is it's adding layers of intrigue, which make an enjoyable read. Right. You also described this most ingenious technique where you, you say um, you used to think, as I wrote, what would I do now? And the revelation was when you realised what you actually had to do was what would my character do now? Where, where did that? Yeah, so I think that's really just about the more I wrote. So um, that made that makes, in terms of writing, that's made my life so much easier because, yes, I did initially, I suppose, you know, the early books that I wrote were women's fiction and I was writing about women's experience. And um, I was constantly thinking, you know, how would I feel in this situation? Would I... Would I be sad? Would I, would I be angry? Would, but now I think of once I've got a character, it's, it's a bit like acting. So I feel like I've, um, I'm sort of donning their clothes. And then once you've donned their clothes, not only does the language become so much simpler because they're going to be talking about things in a certain way and um, describing things in a certain way, but also noticing things in a certain way. But also then their reactions, it becomes much more, you know, there's so much choice if you start a book, you know, you could write about anything. <laughs> and so it is about limit as a writer, it's about limiting your own choices, I think, mm -hmm. making things. Yeah. So. And just, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Just so that, you know, so um, the most recent character, the narrator, Verity in Finders Keepers, she's she works um, for the OUD. She's a. a OED she's a dictionary um a lexicographer and she so therefore she's interested in language so her language is much richer than say the my current character who's didn't go to school so you know that makes the writing much simpler and right and obviously the, all this the goal of all this is to kind of build tension yeah to a degree 
And this is this just seems like um, the most elusive ingredient, you know, tension. How, how, how do you sort of know when to when you need a little bit more? How do you how do you sort of add add this tiny seasoning in? Quite often, that's in the editing process. Um, so, a lot of what I'm, uh, you know, I write as when I write, I'm, I'm writing a first draft now, and it's it really is sort of. I was saying yesterday, I had a sort of an okay day writing, but. I have to write a thousand words every day. That's my sort of target I set myself. And my daughter said, oh, so you had a good day. You wrote your thousand words quite quickly. And I said, yeah, but lots of the work. And then I went upstairs and I made myself a cup of tea. Um, but basically that is the, to get the plot going. And then when I go back, although on very good days, if I'm writing a scene, then I'm totally absorbed in it and the writing flows. And I think more... The more tense, you know, books don't just have tense scene after tense scene after tense scene. A lot of it is about the balance between tension and and calm periods. It's that sort of, oh gosh, dun, 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 what's coming out of the water? And so I suppose it's only when you're re when I'm rereading a novel, I can tell when things need to be calmed down in order to be hyped up in the next scene. But that comes in the rewrite, I think. Okay. Um, yeah. You know. Okay, so we're coming on to rule three now, and you've kind of already sort of alluded to this a little bit, but uh, you said number three is uh, kill your babies. Stephen King's big tip, cut, cut, cut. <laughs> yeah, I do think it's about, you know, you, there's, you know, Stephen King said writing is refined thinking. It's not about, you know, we, our own thoughts are filled with this and that and whatever and going like I'm talking now, I'm going off on different tangents, but when you're actually writing, you have to just boil it down. And I quite often find, I mean, this is more about the editing process, that I'm cutting whole sections. And when I'm writing them first draft, I can't bear to because I, every word is part of my thousand word target. And when I've written my thousand words, I can stop doing it and do something else. But in the editing, I'm completely ruthless and can cut 2,000, 3,000 words a day without thinking about it. Okay. And they are things that you, it's when you've got... Um, you know, I think the whole thing about the Stephen King thing is that it's the language, it doesn't matter how good the words are a lot of the time, as long as they're engaging the reader. And so sometimes you just are loving your description and you just need to cut it. And how long would it, would you expect a, a thousand words to take you? Well, how, what, how much of your day does that normally use up? Um, if there's dialogue, it can be two hours. If there's non-dialogue, then... Um, I mean, sometimes the whole day, sometimes, you know, but I make myself do it. So I might have to stop to have supper and, you know, when the children were little, help them with homework and things, but I then have to go back and do it before I went to bed. Okay. I mean, really, honestly, and to be honest, when I'm on my first draft, I just don't care what the words are like. I just have to get those thousand words down. And um, if I can do it in half an hour, I do it in half an hour. I just would. That's just something that I just can't get the words out. But all I want to do is get it out of the way. It's terrible. <laughs> just about getting it done. It's a weirdly lazy, but also sort of paranoid. It's a strange sort of thing. And then when I'm in the next stage, which is the editing process, I look back at that writing stage and think, gosh, you had it so lucky. It was so good then, because all you had to do was write a thousand words. <laughs> yes, few few writers enjoy writing. <laughs> you also mentioned this thing in, when you were talking about this uh, Stephen King's tip. You say Lee Child is fantastic on this scanning for danger. What do you mean by scanning for danger? Oh, so um, I've just I can't remember what it's called, but I'm just reading the first Lee Child on my Kindle. I've read quite a 
few over the years. I think he's fantastic, actually. And um, but this this first one begins with a guy in a diner, and um, he is on edge and you can just tell that he's on edge because everything that he all his description he is it is quite descriptive he is describing the diner so you get the sense of where he is you know he's totally placed but the descriptions are really just about what people it's a in case of danger so it's and that's the rest of the book is like that too everywhere he goes and I think that character Reacher you know he's always on edge isn't he there are terrible things always happening in in his surroundings and so it's the world is viewed through his lens and his lens is one that is constantly checking for his own safety or the safety of the people around him. So it's a sort of, it's like being with a kind of cop on the, I don't know, <laughs> steps of the White House. It's a sort of, you know, just picking things up constantly. Um, right, right. Okay. And just coming, and your fourth point, your fourth rule of writing was about, um, Again, coming back to your sort of sort of journalistic approach to things, you say write as if you are reporting something that has already happened. Where did this come from? Yeah, so I heard Robert Harris once say that, and um, it really stuck with me, and it was incredibly helpful when I was stuck once. Um, and often, if one is stuck, I think it's because you don't really know what you're supposed to be writing. I think in any fact, my son's doing a dissertation, and he said he was completely stuck, and I said, because you just don't know what the subject is. And I think that's true. I think it's once you... So I... Approaching it as a journey, so Robert Harris's line was about plotting and completely knowing what's going to happen so that when you sit down and write, you're just going from A to B. And I try and do that. And that's the sort of the ideal. I'm just, again, laziness gets in the way and the longing to get writing at an early stage because plotting is sort of so hard, I think. And often you can't really work out. I can't, I'm not completely sure what's going to work until I get there. But the more I can pre-plot and work out what I'm going to write in that day, the easier the writing is. Um, and again, it means you strip out on extraneous descriptions. I mean, it seems like a very disciplined approach to sort of framing your story. You know, if it's, if, because as you mentioned, you know, the journalistic approach is sort of all verifiable facts written in the order of significance, you know, with a, with a great sort of first line and everything. But this is all, it's all quite dry isn't it and factual and the, the, the sort of a list almost a list of details with appropriate quotes how, how do you make sure how do you kind of then bring this to life you know this because uh, I guess other people would uh, you know they're they're you know you kind of think um uh you know if, you, if you're if you're if you're so severe on what information is permitted past your bouncers um, yeah it, it, it leaves you with kind of a bit less to less to work with perhaps yeah, but then you've got a very good story. So you're, it's not like you're writing about, you know, something dry and uninteresting. You've got this fantastic story that you've already decided that you want to write. So the, the bare bones in itself are interesting. I suppose that's how you get past that. You have to, I mean, that leads on to this terrible thing of lack of confidence in everything. So if you're creating every single thing, every character, every situation, there are, of course, moments when you're thinking this is all completely hopeless and... Where, where does this all come from? What that's, madness is here? Who's this? Um, <laughs> that's um, universal, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's Everybody universal. who writes a, a book goes through that yeah. sort of dark night of, um, um, of yeah, self-criticism. Yes. So I suppose, you know, again, if you've got the character, you're writing about this, you're writing in, it's something that's already happened, but you're also in the head of somebody else describing it. So you've got that kind of psychodrama going on. 
and you've usually got a murder or two, Ed. It's not that boring. <laughs> do you only allow yourself, do you only give yourself permission to sort of start once you've got enough of a plot to, to work with? Um, yes. I mean, the second novel, Remember Me This Way, which starts with that woman finding the flowers, I really just started with that. And that's a, she then decides that her husband might not be dead. And But I started that, I found that book incredibly hard. It was very much a difficult second thriller. Um, and I think my problem all along was that I didn't really work out. Before I started writing, I didn't really know what was happening. And I mean, quite often I really change the ending. I'm completely convinced the whole book is set towards one particular ending. And then right at the end, I, it sort of seems some, somehow wrong and I change it. So. Ah, so you change the twist. Yeah, sometimes and completely. That, <laughs> that's crazy talk. <laughs> I know. Now, okay, so rule five, I think, is really inspired. I've not heard anyone say this before, but you say, um, surprise yourself, read it fresh. Can you explain that? Yeah, so um, this feels rather confessional because I feel it's slightly embarrassingly odd, but, and I, d I don't know if other people do it, but once you've written something that, you know, it's from your own head and the const, I mean, you, all writers, I suppose, but you know, you're constantly trying to see it objectively, constantly trying to work out whether it works or it doesn't work. And I, I print out lots, endlessly print out bits and I change the typeface of things that I'm writing and I create new files and I put a paragraph in a new file and I suddenly make it into some crazy cartoon script to try and read it objectively. But then I discovered I got this, my new way of doing it, which, has really, really does come what make it fresh is that I email sections to myself. So I decide which bit I'm troubled by and I'll email it and I'll go away and make a cup of tea and I'll come back. And it's strange because it's also, you know, that sort of little leap of endorphin that you get when you get an email. And I do get that little leap. <laughs> and I go, oh, I've got an email. <laughs> you know, I know it's from myself. And then I read it and it, it's weird. You email it's yourself back again. You know? <laughs> exactly. Very, sometimes it's this is inspired. Well done. <laughs> inspired. But I can immediately see where it's not going well. Right, because it's an email, I don't know, this is something on my Mac, but I forget that I'm reading an email and I try and edit it and then sometimes I delete it by mistake. It goes into some completely different part of the computer and then it's lost and I have to start all over again. But um, like once, you know, I have not only emailed, because um, we share email, we don't share email addresses, but I suppose it's paid for in the house. I've emailed my husband by mistake, just a revelatory bit of, you know, terrible bit of prose. But I've also emailed somebody I don't even know who's got this, whose name begins with SA and um, it just came up, but it was somebody that I'd once, you know, I just sent her a piece of my novel completely <laughs> out of the blue and got an email back saying, I don't know if this is meant for me, you know, some sort of gory, bloody murder scene. <laughs> Yeah, thinking of you. <laughs> Some woman at the school gate. <laughs> Terrible. But I mean, it's, it's a real problem, isn't it? And I, that I think most people just assume there is no solution to it. You know, this because obviously uh, you know what's coming, but the readers don't, and the characters don't, and so you're you you have you no longer have impression to that. You no longer have access to that first impression which is essential when people are reading something. I know, it's really, really hard. I mean, you do have it when your book's out and you pick it up and it's been out for a year or two and you pick it up and you open it and you just think, who, you know, why on earth <laughs> I write that? 
<laughs> and you see some terrible word in the middle of a paragraph and think, I wish I'd taken that out or re repetition. You use the same word over and over again on the page. Is that your default response then to picking up your, you know, your lovely book in a book? <laughs> yeah, isn't that awful? Yeah. Go to self-flagellation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm quite proud of this. <laughs> no, that's true. Self-flagellation is basically the secret of everything. <laughs> OK. And I mean, your novels, they, they often include people who've done some rather despicable things, you know, which you which you take great delight in bringing to the reader's attention. So I just want do you do you think we're sort of better off not knowing just how flawed those in the midst of us can be? Or are you all for exploring, you know, real life cracks and breakages? I think that my some of my characters do despicable things, but not necessarily for despicable reasons. And I think that it's, it, you know, most of us don't do those things. And I think that it's interesting to explore that absolute moment of knife edge shift between might and do you know so and I think it tells you know it is interesting because I think it does you can find out about yourself and about other people by seeing what happens in that moment of shift between maybe wanting or dreaming about doing something or thinking you never would but actually doing it so I think it's worthwhile. I think it is a sort of great you know um in the sort of great unknowability of people, in, you know, we have, to, we have to include ourselves in that, right? And not knowing how we would react in certain situations. So obviously the great dramas of things like wartime are, are an, a, a great example, but I think the things that happen every day, right? Would, you know, would you, ha you don't know what you would do if... Exactly. Um, We've not been pushed, have we? That's quite, the thing. Quite. Um, so it's always interesting to, to find yeah. out through the... Uh, um, through the pleasurable experience of your novels, just yeah. what, what we're capable of. Thank you so much. Sabine, thank you for talking to me. It's thank been you, a real Ed. pleasure. Oh, I've That's enjoyed it. Thanks, Ed. Okay. Take care. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. 